Rev it up and welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 1831. Be prepared to be inspired. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Hello, inspiring automotive enthusiasts, and welcome to Cars Yeah. Today I'm in Chappaqua, New York, with a very special guest by the name of Ian Carr. Ian, welcome to Cars Yeah. Do you have it in gear, and are you ready to release the clutch? Mark, I have it in gear. I am so ready to release the clutch. I've been a fan of your show, and it's an honor to be here. Well, thank you. Uh, great to have you here, too. Now, before I give you a proper introduction, I'd love for you to share with the listeners today one little thing that may be most people don't know about you. <laughs> well, the one thing that most people don't know about me is that uh, I did a week of stand-up comedy at the Riviera Hotel in Las Vegas. Really? What was that like? Uh-huh. It was amazing. It was amazing. It, the, the whole I, I had done stand-up uh, a little bit when I had gotten out of college and, uh, in the late 80s mm-hmm. and hadn't really done it much, but I was doing a show with Steve Sharippa, who you may remember from The Sopranos. Oh, yeah. And uh, uh, Steve, before he was an actor, was the, the head of entertainment at the Riviera Hotel. No and kidding. when he became wow. an actor, yeah, and and when he became an actor, they wouldn't let him leave because he did such a good job. So while he was on The Sopranos, he was also booking talent at the Riviera. Oh my gosh! Uh, anyway, I'm working with him on this show, and he says to me, uh, "Yeah, I hear you've done stand up." And I said, <laughs> "Yeah, I, I have." And he says, "You want to do a week at the Riviera?" Wow. And I said, um, that's a bad Steve impression, but whatever, <laughs> you get the idea. Yeah. Um, and at that time, I had just met him. I didn't know that when Steve Sharippa says something, you can take it to the bank. There is no doubt about it. I never expected to hear anything. Yeah. The next day, I get a phone call. Hello, this is Charlene from the Riviera Hotel. I understand you'll be performing with us for a week. Wow. <laughs> and now I've got like, I haven't been on stage in 15 years or something like that. And Pressure's I have to get on. an act together. Yeah. So, wow. Well, yeah, yeah. You know, stand up, not my thing. I, I don't think I could do it well. And talk about pressure. I, you're dealing with so many things. You could be the greatest comedy writer ever. And if you don't have the right audience, wrong night, something. Uh, yeah. Wow. Brave. Brave, brave, brave. <laughs> For sure. You know, I like to go into things just head head first. You know, I figure I figure everything in life is a story, right? Yep. And if uh-huh. you and if you don't if you don't go in head first, you're never gonna get great stories. So I'm still thinking of things. I'm still remembering things from that week at the Riviera. And wow. it worked out fantastic. I mean, it was it was it was definitely uh, you know, a challenge, but, um, I enjoyed it. Well, that's cool. Well, let's go head first into your life here and have some fun on cars. Yeah. Let me give you a proper introduction. Ian Carr is the founder of IKA collective. It's a creative and content driven production agency currently in its 35th year. This guy's been around Mm -hmm. for a little while. (laughs) I started when I was three. When you were three, there you go. Uh, There's the comedy. IKA's credits encompass television series, promos, commercials, and original digital content. Notable clients include people like discovery network, 
Showtime, Fox, Hallmark Channel, United Airlines, St. Martin's Press, Cisco Systems, The New York Times, and FX. And you'll recognize a few of his hit TV shows that he played integral roles in, including Empire, Gotham, Weeds, Dexter. Oh, my wife and I love that one. American <laughs> Horror Story and Brooklyn Nine-Nine, to name just a few. He spent eight years on Sirius XM as co-host of Jackie's Joke Hunt, and he has a very active YouTube channel, Here's Where the Cars Tie-In, along with his mm-hmm. last name, where he restores classic cars in his home garage. Uh, mm-hmm. I met Ian thanks to Jeffrey Alon uh, when I was a guest on the Auto Lab radio show. And by the way, there's something currently happening on the History Channel. Ian's the voice of the cars that built the world. A very cool series about automobiles that you got to check out on the History Channel. We'll be back in just a minute to talk more with Ian, but first a word from our valued sponsor. So give him a little love. We'll be right back. One of your vehicle's interior surfaces that gets a lot of abuse is your dashboard. The sun beats down and those damaging UV rays cause massive heat cycles, resulting in color changes and sometimes cracks. My friends at Covercraft have a great solution for you and for me. Their custom-tailored dash mats protect your dash from heat buildup while providing a stylus solution. You can choose from a variety of styles and colors, including carpet, suede mat, that's the one I have for my vehicles, Carhartt limited edition velour mats, and the Ultimat for trucks and SUVs. Another great benefit of your Covercraft dash mat is that it eliminates the harsh glare the sun produces from your dash to the inside of your windshield, which can make driving a hazard. Covercraft's dash mat design center is located in Arizona, where they know about harsh sun. I've got a special deal for you. If you use the code YEAH21, Y-E-A-H-21 at Covercraft.com, you'll get 10% off your Covercraft order. That's right, 10% off. Just use the code YEAH21 at checkout. Covercraft, protecting the things that move you. Most people don't think about their collector car insurance until their annual premium becomes due. Well, why wait and see if there are better options for your beloved rides? I didn't. Did you know if you change carriers before your policy runs out, your insurance company has to refund you the unearned portion of your policy premium? I did my homework. I shopped around and I found American Collectors Insurance. And that's who protects my Porsche Turbo That's right, the one I call my orange crush. They've been protecting collector vehicles since 1976. I encourage you to call my friends at American Collectors Insurance. Ask them about their agreed value policy. And if your collector vehicle is on your regular auto policy, you will be shocked at the savings, not to mention the assurance, should something bad happen to your ride, that you'll get what your vehicle is actually worth. Give them a call today for a quote at 866-ACI-YEAH. That's 866-224-9324. Tell them you're a friend of Mark Green at Cars Yeah. American Collectors Insurance. Classic car insurance designed by collectors for collectors. Automotive enthusiasts just like you and me. That's American Collectors Insurance. Give them a call today. All right, Ian, we're back. So let's dive a little deeper into the corner and talk a little bit about your career, your business, how it ties to car and then cars. And then mm-hmm. evolve this into this uh, new YouTube channel where you're restoring cars, something new that you're taking on. You love yep. to dive headfirst into corners. So Ian, take the wheel. Well, thank you so much, Mark. I really appreciate the, the really nice introduction. So yeah, IK Collective is my uh, content creative and production agency. And uh, as you mentioned, we've done a lot of work with networks and major corporations over the years. But my 
hobby, if you want to call it that, is working on cars. Yeah. And one of the great things about owning a production company and being a director and knowing how to work all that stuff is that, you know, I know how to tell a story visually. And, and one day I said, you know, what if I just combine these two things together and I start producing some content in the garage? So that was kind of like the, the, the foundation of it. But I had to give myself some handicaps, you know, because if I approached the stuff I did in the garage, the same way I approach work, <laughs> it, nothing, nothing would get done because I'd be a perfectionist right. and everything, right. you know, would, would, would linger. So at first I said, okay, everything has to be shot on an iPhone and I have to do it all handheld mm -hmm. so that just by not having to move a tripod around, I figured, you know, that's a handicap enough. I'm going to, I'm going to give myself that flexibility. Yeah. But then I realized it was making people kind of dizzy. <laughs> so, <laughs> a little so, too jiggly. <laughs> a little too. So I had to, I had to grab a tripod and, and start doing things. Then yeah. I said, yeah, I'm not going to light. You know, I'm not going to spend the time lighting things. And then I realized you can't really see if you're not yeah, really lighting things. Here we and go. <laughs> so it started, <laughs> it started to snowball a little bit. But I think I've reached a pretty good equilibrium now mm -hmm. um, where I can, I can detune, to use a car phrase, I can detune my expectations a little bit and make it more fun. And, and, and honestly, you know, it's funny. The, when you work in television, you, you know or you, you learn that the pilot episode is is really just the very, very beginning. And shows don't really start to hit their stride until well into the first season. Right. I mean, if you look at old episodes of Seinfeld, you'll oh, see, gosh. you know, Elaine had almost no role in the beginning. And I mean, so these things kind of develop. It's a process. And this, and I, I don't know why I didn't think that would happen on my YouTube channel, but of course it did. And now I think the, the process has kind of worked its way out. And I think it's, I like the mix of it being kind of just me hanging in the garage and then some, you know, valuable, hopefully, um, info about, you know, how to do stuff. But my main, my main driving force for doing this is that I get a tremendous amount of joy from wrenching. I mean, I, I often say it's cheaper than therapy. <laughs> um, yes. And it is. I mean, in, in, especially in my business where so much is subjective, you know, you work on a TV show or you do a commercial or network promo or something like that. There's a million different creative decisions. And as a friend of mine says, uh, th that world is not black and white. It's wildly gray. And I love that phrase. It's wildly gray. But the thing about when you work in a, in a garage and you're, and you're turning a wrench, there is no doubt 18 foot pounds or pound feet is what it is. I yes. mean, there's no, there is no subjectivity and I really love that part of it. But then you kind of meld it with the art of automotive design and restoration and it's a great kind of mix. So I really, I really love doing that. And, and like I said, the whole reason I'm doing it is to share the joy of wrenching because I think there's a lot of intimidation. I think people are just afraid. Oh my gosh, it's a dark art. You know, I can't take a wrench to my car. Right. What know? if I break That's for something? A professional. What if I break something? Then I say, you know, the people who built these cars were not smarter than you and me. And in most instances, they didn't have tools that were as good, you know, uh, Harbor Freight notwithstanding. <laughs> and uh, at least I can go get a tool, you know, just run down Harbor Freight. And they certainly didn't have YouTube. So you can actually see how other people do it. They didn't have forums with communities. I mean, um, as you know, then the Porsche 914 is kind of my drug of choice. Yep. And uh, 914 World, which is the website for Porsche 914 owners and aficionados, is an amazing community. I mean, amazing. You, you, I don't care what you challenge you run into. You put something up on there and you will get 
educated answers within moments. Oh yeah. And everybody's looking out for each other. So, you know, my, I'm on a mission to, to spread the joy of wrenching by bringing people into my garage so they can see that, you know, if I can do it, you can do it. It's a wonderful story. And I wanted to touch on something here for a guy who's worked in real TV for 35 years. You've seen a radical shift with YouTube, people doing what you're doing. Mm. I mean, it, the change that has occurred in the last five years, 10 years, has been absolutely incredible. And the content that people are producing now, some of it is just spectacular on a shoestring, if not zero budget uh, mm-hmm. to put things out there is quite amazing. How has this affected your world in the, what I'll call the real world of television. I mean, these high production, high cost productions of television shows that we have all seen over the past compared to what people are putting out there now. And I'll give you an example why I asked this question. My next door neighbor's retired and he said, you know what? I don't watch TV anymore. I just watch YouTube. It's so mm-hmm. interesting. I can find anything I want. Like you said, you can go in there and learn things. I mean, I always joke about if you want to know how to extract your own teeth, you can learn it on YouTube <laughs> if you really true. want to do that. <laughs> and people probably do. Uh, maybe. Yeah. If they can't afford to go to a dentist or don't want to. So what's your perception of what we're seeing happening right now? How is it affecting television? How is How have the networks had to sh- shift? Because now all of a sudden everything's going to streaming. Mm-hmm. You know, even the big networks, you're just not seeing the interest in what they're producing as much as some of this specialty stuff. So what's your take on on how this reality has shifted for us. Well, it's definitely different, but it's interesting and it, and it's a bit of a it's it's a bit of a conundrum in a lot of ways because yes, the technology has gotten amazing and people can do things that you were you would never even think of doing, you know, before on your home computer. But the budgets for television content have not gone down. You know, people are spending more money than ever. And it really is a golden age of television in the sense that more content is being created for the small screen than ever before. High quality content, what they call in the industry premium content, celebrity driven, um, celebrity executive produced. So I think what's happening is it's really a paradigm shift of the revenue model. Honestly, I think that when television first started, and there's you know three networks through the you know the age that most of us grew up in, the 30-minute format with the 22-minute show and eight minutes of commercials was viable because with only three networks, the audience was only hacked so much, and you could charge enough for those eight minutes to cover all the costs of production plus make some money as a television network. And as things got more fragmented with cable and everything else, those individual 30 second spots were harder and harder to, to monetize everything else. So that's why you have, I mean, so many, you know, so much diversification, even just simply like you look at Disney and the the theme parks and movies and, you know, Disney channel. And so it's, it's not so much about like, let's just make movie, uh, make money over on one thing. It's about diversification. So I think what's happening in the network world, and then there's the linear factor of it, you know, the whole must see TV, or you have to park your butt on the couch at a certain hour to watch a certain show. And the fact that that's uncoupled now, and you can kind of watch anything at whatever time you want makes the network use case, uh, it changes it, it doesn't make it go away. Because there's nothing like networks to, um, to aggregate talent, to um, to to attract the best writing talent and pro- and producers, you know, when you're a one-off, it's much much harder. And and building something, I mean, when Netflix first started with House of Cards, they had it was one show, 
right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, people were like, well, what's this Netflix? And now people are tripping over themselves to work with Netflix. <laughs> oh, yeah. But that didn't happen overnight. Um, there's still plenty of people tripping over themselves to try to work with networks. But but the interesting thing that's different, and I think that's really what's fueling the age of golden age of television, is that in linear television, you only have so many slots, right? So if you are uh, ABC and you've got returning series and other stuff going on, you might have in prime time three slots over the course of a week. Yeah. You got eight, eight o'clock on Tuesday and you got nine o'clock on Thursday and 10 o'clock on Friday available to you for new shows. So think about all the people producing shows and now there's only three slots on that one network to do it. Well, I mean, now with when you go nonlinear, you're not limited by the slots you have. You're right. only limited by the money that you have. Mm-hmm. So the paradigm shift is that as long as you have quality content that can be monetized, whether it be through subscription or or anything, Hulu is a perfect example of that. There's still commercials on that. So as long as you can figure out a way to monetize it, then you can you can build new content. And the interesting thing is the more content you make, the bigger library you have until you achieve this critical mass and you become a behemoth. So I think that's where the networks and, and everything is headed. I mean, it's a long-winded answer to your question. I'm sorry. No, I'm glad you mentioned it because it's an interesting thing that's occurring. And if I was to have you look into your crystal ball, given you've worked in the industry for 35 years now, what do you see? Like, where are we going to be in five years with all this? What do you see? I think more people will cut the cord in five years, you know, and not not be direct subscribers of cable. I think there will be packages as consolidation in the entertainment industry continues to occur. So I think what you'll have is you'll have people who will have a subscription to Discovery Plus and a subscription to HBO. Uh, you know, you'll have you'll have like, you know, 10 subscriptions and you'll watch everything on your computer rather than one cable bill. I think that's probably where we're headed um, in the not-too-distant future. Oh, definitely. Definitely. I mean, I, I would have cut my cable years ago if my wife didn't love football so much. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, But she just hasn't found a good viable option, or maybe maybe there, there is one, and we haven't figured it out so she can watch live football. But uh, yeah, it's a very interesting thing how it's changed. And as I mentioned, now you got this other thing, YouTube, where people are producing mm. their own content, which is very viable and very fun mm-hmm. for us viewers. And even it's brought me into, I've, I've mentioned this before, I have a, a young couple from Australia who've created a uh, once a week show on YouTube called Sailing La Vagabond. And they've been <laughs> sailing around the world for six years. They've just had a wow. baby. And now, they have, now they're having their second baby. On the boat. On the boat. I, I, yeah, as a parent, I'm just going, how? I mean, they're in awe to me. I, <laughs> it's like the fantasy world. I, no doubt right. they work their butts off to create this show every week because they really uh-huh. do a good job. But I call it my weekly sea escape. Mm-hmm. And every Monday afternoon, I take my 17, 20-minute break, and I sit back and pour myself a nice glass of water or whatever, and I watch this, and I think about, what would it be like? Mm-hmm. And I'm not a sailor at all. I have no interest in boats. I mean, they're nice, right. but I'm a car guy, but they've drawn me into their lifestyle, and I'm mm-hmm. I'm in awe, and it's the same with what you're producing and other people are producing around cars that mm. are changing, because we only have 24 hours in a day, right? Right. And so there's only a certain amount of time you have to spend your leisure time, and the fact that these wonderful little devices allow us to take this stuff with us and mm-hmm. watch it at any time. What a radical departure from you or and my being a little kid and being stuck in front of that tube. Oh, it's 7 o'clock, sit down, got to watch right now or you'll miss it. Right. It's an incredible world we're living in, and the fact that we can produce things, and it's it's pretty 
darn cool in my mind. Yeah, <laughs> it is. it's absolutely well, it's about, brilliant. It's about viability, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at the how this all came to be, I mean, YouTube started out kind of like with just kind of, you know, nonsense videos for a while, like mm-hmm. America's Funniest Videos with people getting hit in the crotch, you know, <laughs> like like many technologies, it, it ends up being a goof until somebody says, hey, you know, this could be used for something. But the thing that's really interesting about YouTube from an industry standpoint, from my standpoint, is that in broadcasting, I mean, you really have to look at that word broad, right? So like we were talking about before, if you don't have that much inventory in terms of available airtime, you have to hit the biggest possible audience you can with with that program that you have. When those limitations are removed, you suddenly can create a, a situation where niche audiences are incredibly viable now. So where you wouldn't be able to, like for me, like doing a, a, a channel on repairing a 914 or, or <laughs> 914 related content, there was no way that could ever live on who would watch, you know, I mean, you'd have a, you'd have a loyal fan base, but it wouldn't be enough to justify that business investment. Right. But on YouTube, the, uh, the, the scale is much different. Yeah. So you can produce it more inexpensively and you can have a rabid fan base of it and have a really viable business there. A friend of mine uh, does videos about UFOs and charges he does like four or five of these a year, charges a subscription, I think of like 20 bucks every time he does a video, but he's got like 40,000 people. So if you do <laughs> the go. math, yeah, there's 20 t- bucks times 40,000 and he does that like three times that a year. Nice little income stream. Yeah. You know, I mean, what wouldn't work as a TV show, <laughs> it works great on YouTube. Well, so. it's finding your audience. I think that's the key here. The key message is what networks have been trying to do forever. And it's what's happening now, whether it's a TikTok or an Instagram or a podcasts mm. like Cars Yeah, whatever. You yep. got to find your audience, your niche and go for it. And I would think your advice to someone out there that wants to start something like what you've done on, let's say, a YouTube page and just share what they like to do. What would be your advice to somebody who has kind of been reluctant going, oh, nobody wants to watch me or I'm not very good at this. I'm not spit spot. I, I don't know all the technical stuff like Ian Carr does. <laughs> what, what would be, well, you've worked in the industry. I mean, serious TV. That takes a lot of talented people to produce a good great TV show. <laughs> and we all know that when we pick up an iPhone and we try to make something, we go, this kind of sucks. But but there's an audience for it. So how would you advise somebody that wants to like get started? I always say, just do it. Get yes, started. Absolutely. Well, firstly, uh, just a note about the whole thing about knowing how to make television. If there were a formula and, and everybody in TV knew how to how to make great TV, then every show would be a hit. Yeah. yeah. So um, it, whenever somebody says, I know how to do it, you know, I have the solution, just run away. Because <laughs> yeah. they it's like, I know the don't. right lottery numbers. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it's it, it's a little bit of alchemy. It's a little bit of luck. So uh, but I, I think you hit on something really important is that you have to commit. You know, you have to. You have to say, this is something I'm going to try. And I know you did this because you talked about it on our show, is that I'm going to do this for a certain period of time and I'm going to devote this X number of resources into doing it. And at the end of that period of time, I'll assess and see where I'm at. And if I can, I think, what did you say? If I could pay for lunch or something (laughs) like that? Yeah, if I can monetize a little bit of this to pay for a few things. Yeah, although I did have a son in a private college on the East Coast, so I had had some heavy lifting to monetize. (laughs) (laughs) It's a long way between between lunch and an Ivy League school. Ah, uh, yeah, no kidding. Um, but uh, yeah, so but 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 that's how you find out. Nobody just kind of uh, snaps their fingers and 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 builds a, an audience of millions and and revenue of you know in the millions. It just doesn't happen that way. But it um, 
but but if you if you're committed and you say I'm going to do this and and it doesn't have to be a huge commitment it doesn't it's you know it's a lot like weight loss you know or changing any kind of thing in your life small moves you know it's small moves it really is so a friend of mine had a really interesting way of describing what you just did with the small moves he said you ever notice you take off in a plane in New York Mm-hmm. And six hours later, you land in L.A., which is in a very different place. Yeah. But do you ever really feel the plane move? Right. Like my, maybe at the end, you know, when it circles around or something like that. But the point is that it's it's making tiny little moves that are imperceptible. But over time, it gets you to cross the country. And that's a really important thing to think about. And even in mechanics, it's the same thing. One little bolt, <laughs> yep. one little washer at a time. I mean, I'm restoring right now. Um, a 914 LE, which is a really rare version of oh, the Porsche yeah. 914. Yeah. They only made originally 500 and now there's only like a hundred and some odd left. I'm doing a nut and bolt restoration on it and it's, it, it literally was just a shell. And I looked at this thing with all the bags of nuts and bolts and everything else. And it was, I mean, incredibly daunting, but if you take it one washer at a time, you get through it. You know, you, you create or you mentioned a great analogy here and I've, I've heard this many times and it relates to life. It relates to business. It relates to projects, whether it's a 914 or a weight loss program or whatever it is. When a pilot, my next door neighbor's a pilot. He talks about flying all the time. And when he takes off, he sets a course. But along the way, you're going to get blown around. Yeah. The winds or or elements are going to change your path. You never know what they're going to be. So they're constantly making adjustments during this flight. They don't just fly a straight line. I mean, they have to go up and down and sideways and bank and go around clouds. And that's the way life is. And as long Mm -hmm. as you can accept that and keep adjusting and changing and moving and improving nice way to segment into that, uh, right. then you'll eventually get to where you are, but you have to keep making progress. You can't stop a flight in midair and go, I'm done. I think I'll do this later because you will fall out <laughs> of the sky. So it's a lot like that in life. So I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Let's take a short break. We come back. Let's talk more about your YouTube channel and maybe some challenges you faced with it. You touched on a few with handheld lighting and here we go. Now you're calling your sound tech guy to come over and help and put a mm-hmm. lavalier on you. So sit tight, keep the seatbelts on, and we will be right back with Ian Carr. What began as a charitable car show has grown into the world's greatest collector car auctions, raising over $133 million for charitable organizations to date. For nearly 50 years, automotive enthusiasts from all over the world have enjoyed the Barrett-Jackson Collector Car Auctions, and I'm a huge fan. Regarded as the barometer of the collector car industry, their auctions are world-class lifestyle events, where thousands of the world's most sought-after unique and valuable automobiles cross the block in front of a global audience, in person, on TV, or streamed online. Barrett-Jackson produces the world's greatest collector car auctions in Scottsdale, Arizona, Palm Beach, Florida, Las Vegas, Nevada, and new for 2021, Houston, Texas. The excitement of Barrett-Jackson auctions is contagious, and a unique experience is not to be missed. And coming soon, something new for you Cars Yeah listeners. I'll be teaming up with Craig Jackson on the first ever Barrett Jackson podcast, coming to your mobile devices every week. Listen here on Cars Yeah and check out the Barrett Jackson website for unique details on this new exciting podcast that I'm very proud to be a part of. And be sure to visit BarrettJackson.com today. Barrett Jackson, the world's greatest collector car auctions. I've discovered Linkage. 
It's a new quarterly publication and website that covers the automotive market, driving, restoring, collecting, and discovering your passion for motor vehicles. Linkage is about experiences, opinions, and values. Linkage is an actual, informed, reasoned opinion based on first-hand experiences. A talented Linkage team covers the automotive world, the people who share your passion and mine, smart, considered, rational, and experienced opinions, ones you can learn from and grow. That includes our passion that drives auctions and the collector car market. So come with me and join us on this journey. And be sure to use the code CARS YEAH when you subscribe and they'll give you $10 off. Boom! Linkage, geared for the automotive life. Subscribe today at LinkageMag.com. All right, Ian, so let's talk a little bit about this challenge question. I always bring it up, and let's relate it to what you're doing with this current project, the 914, a very unique 914. I had a 73 2.0 that I bought. Nice. I came up with this genius idea when my son was 15 that that'd be a great first car, and I went out and bought this thing, and my wife walked out and said, where did that come from? And I said, well, you know, it's a Porsche, and it'd be a great car for Blake, and she's like, where's the airbags? That car's way too little. Nope. <laughs> so <laughs> so we made it a project car. We fixed it up and sold it and flipped it into a 3 Series BMW, which was probably a lot safer for a teenager to be driving. Yeah, I would, I would think yeah, so. Yeah, but you know, I'm a crazy car guy, right? And I love, love cars. So let's talk about th- some challenges that you've faced and how you've overcome them with this new YouTube channel. Yeah. Well, there's there's challenges everywhere in, in life, you know? I mean... One of the biggest challenges, obviously, is like, how do you how do you tackle something like this? Mm -hmm. You know, how do you tackle a total restoration of a car? And and that includes the engine, by the way. So it's challenging because there's so many ways in. Have you you done one before? um, I've done top ends of engines before. I had never built one. Well, what about the the whole restoration concept? Have you restored? No. um, Oh, okay. (laughs) But I'll tell you, and and. So I came to like serious wrenching pretty late in life. I mean, I was in my 40s. I mean, I did oil changes and stuff as a kid, and I've always been into cars. But for some reason, I just never really took it on. And I I started with a 1965 Mustang restoration that I had as a father-son project. Nice. I wanted to do something with my with my boy. Uh-huh. And I took to it like something. You know how like you see those stories of people who sit in front of the piano, never played before, but in a week they're doing Chopin? Oh, I hate um, those guys. <laughs> that wasn't quite me. Yeah, <laughs> that me neither. That wasn't quite me. But, you know, I, it felt really natural to me, you know. And um, and then I started kind of getting into it. And I originally had a rule that I wouldn't touch anything that could strand me or hurt me. Um, <laughs> but uh, as I got deeper into it, I found a way to kind of get through this. And and I found, fortunately, a, a mentor for me, which is a, a guy named Stu Silverman. I give him a shout out nice. at, a, at a local auto place here called uh, the Auto Center. Mm-hmm. And I would bring the car to him to check my work, like the professor, and make sure, hey, did I do this right? And he would say to me, he would shake his head and said, you've never done this before? I'm like, no, <laughs> never done this. Then he started to really, he really encouraged me. Every time I bring him like a, a, a thing to do on my car, just because I didn't think I could do it, he said, take it home. Mm-hmm. Take it home. He said, there's two screws under this thing here. You know, you give me just a little, just a little information so that I could go and, and get myself into trouble on my own. And, and I rarely did. You know, he helped really kind of move me along. So I think when you talk about challenges, that's one of them. You know, you got to get out of your own way. 
Yeah. You know, you have to, yes. you have to get out of your own that, head. Yeah. Just do it. I mean, how hard could it be? I also have a Ferrari 308. And nice. when I started taking a wrench to that, <laughs> even I was shaking my head. <laughs> uh, well, you know, what's but, interesting about Ferraris, my son worked for a summer with a, a collector and the first project he gave me said, take the front headlight buckets out of this Daytona. And mm-hmm. Blake called me and he goes, dad, this guy wants me to just start taking his Ferrari apart. I've never even worked on a car. And I said, <laughs> one bolt at a time. And That's it. if something, if something seems weird, stop and ask a question. And by the end of the first week, he had both those headlight buckets out and I'll never forget at dinner. Now this is an old Ferrari Daytona, beautiful mm. car, but mm-hmm. he said, dad, I don't know what those Italians were thinking, but they must've been drunk on Chianti. Cause I've never seen so much crummy build quality and welds underneath a beautiful skin in my life. And I said, well, that's, <laughs> an old Ferrari for you. Yep. I mean, it really is kind of amazing. And 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 by the way, the differences between working on a German car and working on of an course. Italian car. Yeah. I mean, it's it's remarkable. Yeah. It's really remarkable. But um, what's, you the, know, you, what's the color of that 914 you're working on? It, it's a lime. And I can't remember that. It's a lime green, right? It is called Ravenna Green. Ravenna. Oh, um, there we go. I always wanted one in Ravenna Green since I was a kid. I looked for it for years. I didn't find one. I, I settled for a yellow one, uh, 73, and then I had a, like an like an APP, like an AB, an all points bulletin out there. <laughs> APB, you know, hey, yeah. if, you, if you find one of these, uh, you know, let me know. And uh, and sure enough, uh, after like a couple years, one guy in the community says, "I think I found your car." Wow! And uh, I love and, that and I, color. It's it's just amazing. It catches so much attention. Yeah, I, mean, I had a friend in high school whose parents had some money, and they bought him a brand new one. Um, let's see, what year is yours? Uh, the the Ravenna Green one is seventy four. Seventy four. Yeah. So mm-hmm. that must have been the year of his car too, because that would have made sense. And I remember I wanted you know, a Porsche as a new first car. My parents said, yeah, you're born in the wrong house, kiddo. Uh, You better go get a job, which I did. And that's how I bought my first car, but it wasn't that. But he was a little bit spoiled, let's just say. And he wanted a 911, but they bought him a 914, you know, less, Mm -hmm. less engine. And so he didn't like it. He was always kind of snippy and mad about it. I'm like, well, I'll drive. So I always got to drive his car whenever he went anywhere. And I just thought, man, this is the cool, it's like a go-kart. It's great. Yeah, is, is that <laughs> when I ask my guests about a special vehicle story? Is that your special vehicle story, or is there something else? No, there, there's definitely another another story, but it is actually related to the uh, to the to that car, directly related to that car. Uh huh. Um, so uh, I, I don't know how much time you have, <laughs> but <laughs> well, we'll do the con- condensed version. How's that? We'll do the con- we'll do the condensed version. So anyway, so I mentioned that this car. Uh, it's a rare color. Um, it's also highly, highly original. And back in 2019, um, it was invited to uh, be on the lawn at the Quail. Nice. Which was a huge honor. Of course. I mean, just amazing, right? So uh, my car buddies and I planned a trip uh, driving fun roads up from Los Angeles to Monterey, you know, and a bunch of other guys also had cars that were, uh, two, two of the other guys had cars on the Quail, and we were just going to go up for car week and so we set up this amazing trip, right? And uh, we get underway and we have this fantastic lunch in Topanga Canyon and mm. start driving, you know, on old Topanga Canyon Road, great twisties and whatever. Oh, yeah. I get hung up in traffic a little bit, leaving the parking lot at lunch. So the rest of the guys are ahead of me and I start diving into the twisties. I go over a little bump and I hear a noise like I, and I'm like, oh, that's not usual. 
Yeah. I hit the brakes and the pedal goes to the floor. Uh-oh. In the canyon. Now, fortunately, I, I wasn't on a steep hill, um, but I white-knuckled the e-brake and I limp over to this small parking lot in front of the Chabad school of Topanga, religious school in Topanga. Uh-huh. And I see a puddle of fluid that's bleeding out the back. Yeah. Well, there's no cell service in the canyon, and the rest of the gang is well ahead of me, out of walkie-talkie range. So I tell my son to wait near the car while I try to go get help. I see this guy walking towards a house behind the school and ask if I can use the phone. Well, it turns out it's the school's rabbi, a guy named Dovid Weiss. Mm -hmm. Great guy. So he lets me use the phone and then asks if I would pray with him. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Let's pray for the so, car. <laughs> yeah. So I say, why not? I'm in a bad yeah. situation yeah. here. It seems like a good time to pray. Might help. Now, this kind of praying involves wrapping your arm in a leather strap and putting a small box with a religious scroll on your head. I don't okay, know if you've ever seen. Okay, maybe that's the point you start to run back to the roadway. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I'm like, yeah, okay, I'll do it. You know, I'm like I said, I'm game. You just got to go in. Interesting. So as I'm doing this, <laughs> my son, who I guess is wondering where I am, yeah. leaves the car and walks up to the house, and he's <laughs> now he sees me wrapped in leather. Trying oh, to make what, sense oh, of what I'm doing. Yeah. Five minutes ago, we're eating lunch. Do I need to rescue you, Dad? <laughs> yeah, and now I'm praying with a rabbi I just met. Wow. So um, I waited for AAA, but their their estimates went from one hour to three. Yeah. It's already four o'clock, and I'm seeing the trip and the quail and everything just completely slipping away with me yeah. from me. Yeah. So I, now I remember what my mentor Stu what he said, and he, and I thought, let me see if I can find out what's going on. So all I got is time now, and I, I put the car up on uh, on on the the stock jack, uh, and I take a look, and I see right there on the bleeder in the back is a wrench, uh, oh. <laughs> sitting literally sitting on, on the, the bleeder, bleeder valve. Yeah, okay, yeah. So the bump must have knocked it. The fluid drained out. Yep. I realize this is great news because there's really nothing mechanically wrong with this system. Mm-hmm. But um, how did the wrench get there? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? somebody left so, it there. <laughs> well, so the the backstory of it was uh, since I knew the car was going to go to the quail, I wanted to bring it up to show ready. So yeah. I, I shipped the car to L.A. a few months out to get some paint work done, a bunch of other little things. I put new calipers from PMB Performance, who's amazing at all uh, all corners. And uh, the car was in a friend's garage, so I could do a lot of work myself when coming out for other business when I was in L.A. for mm-hmm. TV. Yep. Now, the 914 is notoriously difficult to bleed. Notorious. Yep. I went through a few liters of fluid. I'm finally starting to get a pedal, but I had to fly back to New York before I had a chance to bleed it one last time. So another friend of mine in L.A. offered to do it while I was away. Like I said, the 914 community is, yeah. is amazing that way. Yeah. So I gladly accepted when I came back to L.A. a day before the trip, I had speed bleeders with me, tubing, fresh fluid to do it one final time if I needed. But I figured, let me take it for a test drive first. And it drove great. So for once in my life, I decided to leave well enough alone. Yeah. And, uh, and off my son and I went. Yeah. Well, it seems my friend inadvertently left the wrench on the bleeder. And now I'm stranded in Topanga Canyon. <laughs> praying so, with a rabbi, wrapped praying in with a rabbi. So I look at the wrench and realize I'm grateful it's there because it's actually the only tool I was missing to bleed the brakes. (laughs) I put the speed bleeders in, cracked open the fluid. The praying worked. The praying worked. I I bled the car right there in the Chabad parking lot with the stock jack, and the rabbi cheered us on, and I have video of this. That is hilarious. Um, And my son, uh, you know, put put all the tires on everything, and long story, a a little shorter, we made it to the quail. Um, It was an amazing experience, and that's the picture I sent you, actually. What year uh, was that? 
That happened in 2019. That was the last oh, one before okay. our, yep. uh, you know, collective well, world. Then I, to- then I saw it because I was there. So there you go. Absolutely. I'll have to go through my pictures and find that. I'm going to crawl into your skull a little bit here, Ian. If you woke up tomorrow and you were manifest as a vehicle, this isn't what you want to be. This is your personality as a vehicle. What would you be and more yeah. importantly, why? Well, um, I think uh, it, this is this is not me cheaping out here in answering your question, but I would be a 914. Okay. Uh, and the reason why is because uh, it's not for everybody. Mm-hmm. The 914, the styling is some people just love it. And some people are like, I don't get it. And I think that's, you know, maybe, maybe like me a little bit. <laughs> it's, it's quirky, but it does what it does well. Yeah. And the people who love it really love it. Yeah. Um, so I would say I'd be a 914. That or maybe a Pontiac Aztec. Oh my gosh. Well, now we're For the going same down. Reasons. Now we're, we're going down a very bizarre road. I'm not even going to ask you why on that one. Same well, reasons. Same, same re- reasons. Well, okay. I always think of Breaking Bad when I think of those poor vehicles. Yeah, not, the, not meth. Yeah, That's not the one, meth and no, a, pizza on the, a pizza on the roof. So there you go. Right. What a great series that was. Man, the writers were genius in that one. Uh, totally. Very, yep. very fun. How about a great read, a great book? Would you like to share one with us? Yeah, sure. Um, and this is from a long time ago, but it's really still had a, a deep effect on me. Um, there's a book called The Music Lesson. It's by Victor Wooten. It's kind of an obscure book. Um, Victor is one of the world's best bass players. And a musician friend of mine, Daria Musk, turned me on to it because we were, we were talking about kind of like the way your brain works and, and the universe and getting into that deep stuff. In the book, uh, Victor Wooten feels stuck in a rut with his playing and his career. And someone appears in his life, and somehow this person knows everything about him. And he acts as a spiritual guide. And throughout the book, you're not quite sure if this person is real and if the book is an autobiography or maybe it's a novel. It's it's really well done. Um, The person, I think the character in the book's name is Michael. Um, And he changes Wooten's life by teaching him that everything we need to have everything we really want is, is inside us. Mm -hmm. And we just need to trust the inner voice or, or ask the right questions. It's not about having the right answers so much as it is asking the right questions, because the way our brains work is if you ask the right question, your brain will work really hard to find the answer. But if you're just looking for the answer to something, it won't it won't show up as organically or or methodically as asking the right question first. Ah, well, I'm going to have to get my hands on that. No one's ever mentioned that book, and I'll tell my listeners, as you know, there's a great place in the Cars Show website called Guest Recommended Books, where there's almost 2,000 books listed there by my inspiring automotive enthusiasts. And here's a new one to add to your library, your repertoire, since we're talking music. So The Music Lesson by Victor Wooten, W-O-O-T-E-N is his last name. Yep. I'm going to get my hands on that. Give that a read. Sounds great. We'll be right back. One more short break. We come back. We're going to go on the ultimate drive. Maybe it'll involve a little praying with the rabbi. You never know. So <laughs> sit tight. We'll be right back. And I'll insert some more ad spots here. What a fun talk. All right. <clears throat> All right, let's go on the ultimate drive. You get to pick a vehicle. You get to pick who mm-hmm. you're with. You get to pick the roads you're on, what you're going to mm-hmm. talk about. So what does that ultimate drive look like to you, Ian? This one is easy. Okay. Okay. It would be a 1971 Mercedes 280SE 3.5 Cabriolet. Ooh. And I, it, it is my choice because my dad bought one new. 
Oh, wow. It's the first car I remember seeing in the showroom. And I remember watching my dad go over to the desk and sign for it and and driving it home. And unfortunately, he he sold it reluctantly. It had something to do with his partner and business, not not letting him buy it from the business. I don't remember. I never got the full, full story or I never fully understood the story. Um, But I would I would choose that car because uh, I was 13 when he sold it. And I never had the chance to drive it. And it was so significant. It's so beautiful and so classic. I mean, it still is. Yeah. Um, so I would love to just take another ride in that car. And and who it would be with, uh, obviously, it would be with my dad. I mean, I'd talk with him about building things. He was an architect and owned a, oh, yeah. uh, owned his own business. My and, dad was an architect. Oh, is that right? Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, he was... He was into, he was a fascinating guy, you know, and he would build things and your, your, your father was an architect of uh, commercial or mostly or he did or? homes, custom homes, but in his later part of his career, he did some commercial projects and development, became a bit of a developer, uh, mm-hmm. some shopping buildings and things like that, but mostly custom homes cool. for people and yeah, things like that. But that car is pretty cool. I have a friend who lives down where I grew up in La Jolla, California, who has one that was Roy Orbison's car. Wow, cool. Yeah, and it is, she's had it for a while. Her husband bought it for her, and um, it's it's a beautiful kind of a cream white color. Mm. And um, I'm trying to remember the license plate. There's a song that he did, um, Pretty Woman, and the license plate is Pretty Woman, um, which is appropriate for my friend. She's a very attractive lady. Uh, I've known her since junior high, but uh, yeah, those cars are just, they're built like tanks, kind of the last of the hand-built Mercedes-Benz. Yep. Oh, yeah, if only you still had that car. Yeah, that's got to be, do you, do you know by any chance where it could be these days? Is it still I, around? Yeah, I don't. You know what? And I was just talking with a friend of mine um, about uh, finding it, because I think, um, I know the insurance company we had, and I'm sure the records are there. So if you had the VIN, um, yeah, yeah, I don't have the VIN, but I think I can get it. Okay. And you know what, if I have some time, I mean, that's one of my bucket list things is I'd love to find that car. I mean, the real fantasy is find it and, uh, and restore it. Um, of course the last we heard about it, it was a beautiful, like maroon color. Uh, and the last we heard, uh, was that it was sold, you know, right after my dad sold it, and they painted it some sort of orange color. Huh. So if, well, if you if, if you know out there anyone who's listening to this, an orange 280 SE 3.5 Cabriolet yeah. that had a repaint, uh, I want to hear from you. Well, there's a couple of people I've had on the show here. Roy Spencer, who deals in those cars. J.G. Francis, uh, who deals in those cars. Um a few people who've been on the show here, we'll have to put some uh, finders out, feelers out there to see if we can find that thing for you because that would be pretty cool. There was a great color back in that era Mercedes. They made like a pumpkin. It was a, a non-metallic mm. pumpkin orange color that was beautiful mm-hmm. color. Uh, I don't know if that's what it was painted. What was it originally? It was mar- it was like a maroon. Mar- a maroon. I don't, I don't okay. remember the name of it, the Mercedes color of it, but it was like a it was very deep, deep red. Yep. Uh-huh. Yeah, I've got a friend that has a uh, an older, that era coupe, 
um, the two-door coupe that he's had for a long time, a diesel. I think he's got like 400,000 miles on it or something like that. Wow. Yeah, yeah, it's a workhorse. Well, you've taken us on a wonderful ride. We could talk forever about cars and all the fun stuff you're doing. Before I let you go, could you uh, leave us with maybe some parting words of wisdom, advice, a mantra, a success <laughs> quote? A success quote. Well, it, it, you're going to laugh, but okay. my favorite success quote in life uh-huh comes from the Little Rascals. Remember the Little Rascals? <laughs> of course, I watched them all the time. Yep. Okay, well, Stymie on the Little Rascals. He, you know, he didn't, we didn't know that he was a philosopher, but he gave Plato a run for his money, yep. let me tell you. Yeah. So Stymie's line, which I quote, if not daily, definitely weekly, okay. is this. <laughs> and, and, and the story is, so he, he and the kids are, um, they build like a like a makeshift fire engine or something like that, and uh, and and they take it to the top of a hill in oh, L.A. and they're I, running down the hill. I remember. I don't know if you remember yeah. that. Episode. I do. I do. So as the fire engine is making its turn and starting to go down the hill, Stymie turns to Spanky and says, "I don't know where we're going, but we're on our way." Yeah. I, yeah. I love that. Uh, it's and wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> it's just and and it, I find it's like one of the truest things in life because if you think about it. We're always in motion, but none of us knows where the journey is going to end. Yeah, yeah. So I, I love it. <laughs> you know, I I find that it's uh, and even in that story I was telling you about the uh, you know when we, when I had the brakes go out of me in Topanga, when I finally did get in touch with um, with my car buddies and they said, "Where are you? What's going on?" I said. I don't know, but I'm in the middle of a great story. (laughs) No doubt. And you shared it with us. And I appreciate that. What are some of the ways people can, excuse me, keep up with you and watch your YouTube channel? Well, I'm on youtube.com slash Ian Carr. That's I-A-N-K-A-R-R. There you go. Kind of easy to remember. And I guess with my last name, I was destined to do something like this, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, So yeah, it's youtube.com slash Ian Carr. And uh, and you can check that stuff out. And one of the other things I was going to tell you about that is that I like to put the warts in. You know, I, when I make a mistake or do something not right, yeah. um, you know, I like to put that in there. It's one of my favorite things. Don't they call to do. those it's, blooper reels. <laughs> yeah, but it's, I think it's more like a life reel. Cause I think life is more about bloopers than it is about getting things right. You yeah, know? So, absolutely. uh, so yeah, you can see it on there and, um, and then you can find my, uh, company website at ikacollective.com. All right. I'll make sure I put links to those on Ian Shono's page. Check it out. Check up, check out his YouTube page. And I'll tell you what. If this didn't inspire you to take that leap, that big, bold leap, and get out there and produce something, whether it's a podcast, it's a blog, a vlog, a video, YouTube, whatever, we have never lived in a time in the history of mankind where it is so easy to do this on limited or zero budget. Just try it. You never know what you might end up producing, and you never know who you might end up inspiring. Ian, thank you for spending some time with us today. This was great fun. I think I'm going to go on a road trip with you. Who knows where we're going to end up? I hope uh, so, Mark. This was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. You're welcome. But whatever it is, we're on our way. I'll see you down the road. All right. Nice.